0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today in our program, we continue our series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, with Dr. John Newfeld. So let's begin now with our message called An Invitation to the Kingdom of God, found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 20.
1: I'm reading Matthew 7, 13 to 20. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is narrow that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You know, one Sunday morning after the sermon was over, a woman approached her pastor and thanked him for the encouraging sermon he had preached. But the preacher wanted to appear spiritual, so he said, well, don't thank me, thank the Lord. And without a moment's hesitation, the woman replied, wasn't that good. Now, all of us have heard sermon jokes. I know I have. They all seem to have a common theme, boring, not exciting, and somehow not satisfying. And some of you have heard of the name Garrison Keillor. He's a well-known American storyteller heard all over the English-speaking world. Here's what he said about sermons. He said, I've heard a lot of sermons in the past 10 years or so that made me want to get up and walk out. Why? They're secular, psychological, self-help sermons, friendly but of no use. They didn't make you straighten up. They didn't give you anything hard. And I have entitled this series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. It's the sermon that Jesus preached at the beginning of his second year of ministry right outside of Capernaum on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Crowds came to hear him, and it was no self-help psychological sermon. This was a hard-hitting and demanding sermon, and no one fell asleep. Here's the context. Many of the people who had come to hear that sermon were not yet followers of Jesus. They loved to hear him, yep, and they even believed in him, at least to some extent. And they knew that he often healed the sick, but following him, doing what he said, well, that was the hard part. And in this sermon, the one called the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus has been explaining that the kingdom of God was breaking into the world. What he meant was that the dominion or the reign of evil was now coming to an end. God had sent his king, and now demons were shrieking in terror. Incurable diseases were being healed. Blind people could see. Good news was being preached. Since evil was now being crushed, Jesus was presenting an announcement. God was beginning to rule. The age was coming to an end. Now was the time to repent and believe the good news. But Jesus was doing much more than announcing the kingdom. He was describing who the citizens of his kingdom were. They were the poor in spirit, those who mourned, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and those who hungered and thirsted after righteousness. No, he was not saying that being this way got you into the kingdom. Or if only you could begin to get a taste for righteousness, well, you'll find your way in. Nothing like that at all. What he was saying was that those who were in the kingdom already were like this. How they got that way, he leaves unsaid only that they are the salt of the earth. And then he taught the ethics of the kingdom. That is, once having described who was in, he goes on to describe the lifestyle of those who were in. They were the ones who took God's revelation seriously, who loved their neighbor and their enemies, who refused lust and divorce and murder. They were the ones who told the truth even when it hurt, who were generous to the needy, who learned and practiced righteous praying and trusted in God for their daily bread. They refused to judge others unjustly. Instead, they lived by the golden rule and trusted God as their father to supply them with all of their needs. But that's not where the sermon ends. Now comes what Garrison Keillor called the hard part. This is the stuff, if you haven't been listening up to now, will now grab you and make you listen. Because Jesus is now going to do what he has waited to do to the end of the sermon. He is now going to tell the crowds how to get into the kingdom. And so now at the end of his sermon comes an invitation. You know, in some ways, what Jesus is doing is not new. Moses did something very similar 1,500 years before Jesus. Here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And that's what Jesus does. He invites people to choose life. He does so by pointing out the two great options, life and death. There is a narrow gate, he said, that leads to life. And there is a broad, easy pathway that ends in death. See, most people are unaware that this is the choice they face. They go through life never knowing that they have chosen death. Life presents them with a series of choices, and they make them without considering that all choices lead in an eternal direction. But rather than simply telling his followers to choose life or death as Moses did, Jesus describes two gates, or if you will, the entranceway to two very different pathways. The image of the narrow gate suggests that the way forward is constricted. To follow Jesus will mean that there are things that something will be restricted in some way. It will be limited. The alternative is the wide gate in which every way forward is unrestricted. I want you to imagine two gates, gates you can see through, but gates you cannot climb over. You have to walk through them to get to the path. But you can see the path, at least the beginning of it. But you can't see the end. You need to choose before you can see the end. The pathway represents the direction of your life. Walking a path is a biblical image that reflects the journey of life. Psalm 1, for example, it begins by saying, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Or or Psalm 23 speaks about walking in the valley of the shadow of death. Proverbs 2 contrasts walking in integrity and walking in the ways of darkness. In each case, the image is that of a pathway upon which we walk, which sets the direction and course of everything that we will follow in life. And that's precisely the image that Jesus presents. But what is added in Christ's image is the image of a gate that opens up through which we must go in order to enter the chosen pathway. See, one gate is extremely narrow. You can hardly get through. The other gate is wide. So why is there a gate before the path begins, or what did Jesus mean when he spoke about the gate? Well, clearly, he's making an invitation to follow him. But why does following him look like entering through a narrow gate? Now, to answer that, it's best that we consider what else Jesus taught about the choice to follow him. Consider what he said in Matthew 16, 24-26. There we read, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or What shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, just to be clear, here's what Jesus said was meant by following him. Number one, you have to pick up your cross, which meant Pick up your death penalty. Give up your life for me. Second, you have to deny yourself, which meant say no to the things that you now want to have. Number three, you have to lose your life, which really is a repeat of picking up the cross in point number one. And number four, you have to lose the whole world, which is a repeat of denying yourself the point in point number two. See, even if we don't know what all that means, it must mean that following Jesus will cost us everything of earthly value. You have to count the cost before you become his disciple. Now, of course, he compared this in Matthew 13 to finding a field with a huge treasure in it, and so a person who is so overwhelmed with the treasure will sell everything he or she has and buy that field. In other words, the promise is that the reward in the end is greater than the loss at the beginning, true, but that still does not take away the cost. Let's look at another passage, Luke 14, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, the same idea. Abandon all your earthly treasures. So to be clear, conversion for Jesus is not filling in what's missing in your life. It's not finding that nagging hole in your life and filling it with Jesus. If I might compare our lives to a house, Jesus is not talking about doing an extreme makeover. Rather, he's talking about burning that old house down in order to receive a better one. But you have to submit to him lighting the match and taking away from you that which you now have.
0: As we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, we see how Jesus doesn't sugarcoat his messages just to please the crowd. In fact, in his invitation to the kingdom of God, he brings another hard lesson on what it really requires of one to be a true believer. So far, we've learned that Jesus requires nothing but our entire lives, given to Him so that He can change us from the inside out. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld shares what Jesus teaches us regarding false prophets, how to recognize them, and more. Psalm 25.5 says, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. As a ministry, we exist to proclaim God's truth so that all people might know and be changed by the good news of the gospel. That's why we're committed to offering all of our Bible-teaching audio resources for free across multiple mediums. Would you help us to reach more Canadians every day with God's Word? You can become a monthly partner today through our Partner to Tell campaign and make a tangible difference for the kingdom. For more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: Weighing the rest of the teachings of Jesus about conversion, we begin to see what he has in mind when he described the narrow gate. I think he meant that the gate was so narrow that all you could get through was yourself, nothing else. If you want to enter into the pathway of the kingdom, whatever backpack you now have, whatever other securities you have for the journey in life have to be dropped off at the gate. No room to get them through. You See, that's the contrast. The broad gate allows you to pack as heavily or as light as you wish. Now, the narrow gate is restrictive. And someone might ask, yeah, but can you get practical? Well, yes, I can. Jesus demands that we have no other gods besides him. Anything you can't live without is left at the gate. Tertullian, a great pastor from the second century, was once approached by a man who had come to Christ and as a non-Christian had made idols to be sold for a living. He told Pastor Tertullian of why he still made idols. He said, I must live. And Pastor Tertullian responded, must you? Let me put it bluntly. Whatever you have today that you can't live without but will keep you from following Jesus must be resolutely abandoned. Nothing goes through the gate but you. Why? Because Jesus accepts no competitors. Not even your own earthly life is allowed to compete with Jesus. And then, as you consider that, he says, the pathway I call you upon is hard. Why? Because you will have to renounce lust and adultery and lies and the love of money and hatred and revenge and retaliation. You must accept his ethic. And that says Jesus is the way to life. And the other, the easy path, well, that's the path of death and hell. So in order for us to understand the two great options we face, Jesus helps us to see that before every human being stands two gates that invites us to the great adventure of life. One gate offers everything but ends in death. The other gate demands everything, but the end leads to life. And with that, Jesus speaks of the dangers that come in the choices his listeners must make. In verses 15 to 20, Jesus warns of the false prophets. At first, they seem confusing, for they look so very much like they are legitimate. They come in sheep's clothing, meaning that their appearance seems benign. Nothing in their appearance gives the impression that these prophets are dangerous. The idea that they are ravenous wolves who leave a trail of the dead after them, well, that seems hard to believe. But that's what the false prophets are. They are killers. In practical terms, how are we to understand this? You know, I've heard this passage quoted by all manner of people and applied to anyone they disagree with. Even false teachers quote this passage condemning all who are in opposition to them. And that disagreement can range over a whole wide variety of theological differences that people have. It's so very easy to quote this passage and to apply it to others. So quite practically, how are we to understand this warning? Are there specific people Jesus is concerned about? See, I think the best way to understand Jesus is to understand the place of this warning in the wider context of the Sermon on the Mount. Clearly, the false prophets Jesus warns about are those that contradict what he is teaching here. Furthermore, the reason Jesus speaks about false prophets at this very place in the sermon is that Jesus is quite aware that his invitation to enter into the kingdom through the narrow gate will be subverted. When Jesus calls for conversion, he's not soft peddling his message. At the very moment of conversion, he warns the potential convert to hesitate, to count the cost, to recognize that conversion demands one's all. See, I'm convinced that the evangelical world as a whole is forgetting this. In our attempt to make conversion as appealing as we can, we have taken the edge off of the calling of Jesus. God are the demands of repentance and a renouncing all that one has to follow Christ. In its place is a kind of easy believism, a mental ascent to simply believe that Christ's death on the cross pays for our sins, and this divorcing of the cross from the call of discipleship has filled the pews of the church with people who have not embarked upon the narrow way. Now, Jesus is not the first person to warn about false prophets. The Old Testament is filled with warnings on this nature. Old Testament scholar Hobart Freeman did an excellent study of the Old Testament tests for true and false prophets and came up with 10 different tests in the Old Testament. And for our purpose, I'm not going to list all 10 of them, but let me list three of them which directly bear on Jesus' teaching. First, in the Old Testament, the moral character of a prophet was to be examined. For instance, Micah 3.5 says that we should examine whether the prophet who prophesies prophesies for his personal advantage. If the prophet has some kind of benefit in his message, he is to be discounted. Isaiah 30 verses 10 to 11 also warns of prophets who only tell people what they want to hear. This kind of prophet only affirms what people already believe in the first place and what they are going to do anyway. Again, the prophet gains an advantage because he has affirmed and been appreciated by sinners. It's like Balaam, who says the kind of things that people who pay him want him to say. Second, in the Old Testament, the prophet's message was to be examined, to see if it was in harmony with what other true prophets have said in the past. Since God does not speak one way and then the next speak in the opposite direction, this is absolutely essential. That's why Jesus himself said that he had not come to abolish the law. And third, in the Old Testament, the moral quality of the message was to be examined. Jeremiah 23 is all about that. Did the prophet condone sexual sin? Did he promise that God would not judge people for sin? If they pronounced peace upon people when there was no peace from God, well, they were false prophets. Now, please understand this. When Jesus says you will know them by their fruit, He no doubt has in mind the kind of tests that the Old Testament sets forth. What kind of men are they? One, are they in it for their own good or for the glory of God? Two, is their message consistent with all of Scripture, not just one part of the Bible, but the whole Bible? And three, are they telling you that the road to following Jesus involves a denial of self? You see, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And here's the image. Grapes and figs are the most valuable and widely consumed fruit in Israel at the time of Christ. But thorns and thistles, because there were no pesticides, would grow right in the middle of the grapevines, and sometimes you'd have to look closely to see which was which. But all you had to do was pluck their fruit, and you could tell in an instant. Even though they look like sheep, they're wolves, who want you down the broad road that leads to death. And that leads me to put the images of the two ways and the two prophets together. And now I can speak very plainly. The way of life glorifies God and makes much of his desires. The way of death glorifies man and makes much of his desires. The way of life demands repentance from sin along with faith. And the way of death demands a kind of faith that requires no change of heart and an utter renouncing of our former way of life. False prophets will tell you that if you've prayed the sinner's prayer years ago but are not following Jesus, you are saved nonetheless. They will tell you that if you are living in known sin, this may not be what God wants for you, but you're fine as long as... You've prayed the sinner's prayer and keep trusting in Jesus, whatever they mean by that. So please don't misunderstand me. Some of us are struggling with sin, but we are saved and we're washed by the blood of Jesus. Now, that's because we have decided not to make peace with sin, but to fight sin within until we've defeated it. But some of us are struggling with sin, and this sin proves that we're not saved. We're not washed in the blood of Jesus. And what's the difference? See, what I'm about to say is crucial. If you're making excuses for your sin or justifying your sin or are willful in your disobedience to Jesus in his word, you have never entered through the narrow door, no matter what the false prophets tell you. But if you have ceased making excuses for your sin and you've laid all at the feet of Jesus and through the Spirit are learning the pathway of victory, well, you are saved. False prophets will tell you that you don't have to lay your idols aside. You don't have to deny yourself. You don't have to pick up your cross and you don't have to follow Jesus. All you have to do is count yourself saved. Listen to me, my hearer, resist them. There is a narrow gate and it's the gate that will cost you everything. You must renounce all that's hateful to the kingdom and come to Jesus just to get to heaven. You need to abandon your idols and to follow Jesus. Join us tomorrow as we continue
0: to unpack what that means. John, in our spiritual journey, why is it so easy for us to default to the things we want to do for the kingdom rather than just reliance upon God?
1: Yeah, I think the answer has to be pride. It's always pride. I mean, we like to put ourselves in the position where God is our debtor. And uh, then we think that, you know, I mean, I've begun to earn points before God, and something that I've done has ultimately mattered in the, in the face of eternity. And, and as a matter of fact, the things that matter are what God does for us and our enjoyment of them. And, and I think that's why Jesus says that the gate is narrow. I mean, we have to leave aside all the other things, the, the pride that we want to take along with us. So, you know, it's, it's a wonderful lesson for us to remember that there is an invitation of the king to simply come and enjoy the benefits of his kingdom.
0: According to Jesus, not many enter on the narrow path that leads to life. In fact, there are few that even find it. Today, are you on that path? In this message, Dr. Neufeld has helped us to understand the importance of knowing Jesus' words about what it means to follow Him. And it's so important that we can discern false teachers who lead so many astray in their watered-down sermons that merely scratch itching ears. I hope this message has impacted you and pray that all of us would take a sober look at the path we're walking. Tomorrow, we continue to learn more about the Sermon on the Mount as Dr. Neufeld teaches us on an invitation to obedience. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Have you signed up for our new Truth and Life magazine? Our latest resource from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again features a great selection of relevant and uplifting articles for all Canadians and it's absolutely free. And so when you initialize your subscription, you'll get the publication six times a year delivered to your household. Each edition enjoys regular articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, Plus many other guest writers and pastors from across the country. Our April-May edition, for example, features Dr. Newfeld sharing a practical lesson on checking our attitude when it comes to judging the words and actions of fellow believers. In addition, Truth in Life keeps you informed about all the latest ministry updates and much more. For your free subscription, just go to BackToTheBible.ca. Or call us right now at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.